0: That advice could be plastered on every dorm room in, in every college across the country. Get out of your own way. You don't know everything.
1: That's Scott Fobble, professional distance runner and owner of the 11th fastest time in U.S. marathon history with his recent 7th place Boston Marathon finish. He's also an avid meditator whose mindset shift away from outcome and deeper into his process has opened doors previously unattainable. This interview is about so much more than running, though I expect runners and athletes alike might absorb something meaningful. We're diving deeply into the existential terrain of discipline, teamwork, and the question of whether or not any of us should care about professional sports amidst today's humanity. This is the Supergivers Podcast. My esteemed guest today is marathon runner, Scott Fobel from Flagstaff, Arizona, Hoka One One, NAZ elite runner, and co-author of Inside a Marathon, a recent book that came out about your experience as a runner.
0: Yeah, it was about um, kind of like the process of training for the New York City Marathon, which I ran um, last fall, wrote it with my coach. And um, I guess in simplest terms, it's probably, it looks like a training log, but our hope was always that it would feel um, a lot more like a journal. Um, and kind of give people really like invite them along on the journey with us in Flagstaff and New York and all the kind of places we went uh, in between and try to be as vulnerable and open and honest and tell the story as completely as possible.
1: And is that vulnerability and openness what you're finding people are really jazzed about?
0: Yeah, a lot of it is the the training and the stuff that I'm glad people are interested in is the vulnerability um, because the training isn't like that could be anybody. You could put anybody's training in there and that's fine but I was really happy with I'm really happy every time somebody like grabs onto the moments where we weren't sure that something was going that this was going to go well or uh the moments when I was like struggling or um when I put something in the book that I it was hard for me to write. Mm. Like for example, at one point I was like coming into workouts or a few workouts and I was like on the verge of having panic attacks and I had to go see a sports psychologist and really figure out strategies to deal with that and um I like it when people acknowledge that and say like oh that's something that I've had to deal with as well um because that's a vulnerable it's a hard thing it was a hard thing for me to write and it's a hard thing to kind of express and deal with and I'm I'm glad that it's gotten noticed by a few people
1: yeah Yeah, and I'm not surprised because people, it humanizes you and people can actually relate and see the parts of themselves in you, even though their workouts may look different. Yeah, definitely. So it's interesting, the timing, because the book came out a few months ago, is that right? Yeah, it came out in December. Right, so it comes out as you're in your primary buildup for Boston, which if you're listening to this, you may know that Scott was the top American in the Boston Marathon just a couple weeks ago. And I'm wondering how not only the process of your vulnerability in writing the book, but then also the the initial reaction to the book served your preparation for this incredibly successful race.
0: That's a good question.
1: Uh, I guess like the
0: process of writing the book kind of helped me to distill what it was that I was feeling in the New York segment and maybe learn from it a little bit more and grow a little bit more than had I just kind of mentally processed it as opposed to really sitting down in an organized fashion and documenting it in terms of like how well it's or how it's been responded to. I don't know that that necessarily changed a ton other than the fact that we, uh, Ben and I about halfway through the segment on a week that we were, had planned to take really easy. Anyways, we went to, um, St. Louis and then Chicago and then Boston And we did um, some book events that week. And uh, it was very, very, so like that was kind of a distraction from our normal process. That's not something I've really done before where I kind of leave Flagstaff and go on some sort of tour for a week. Um, So that was a little bit strange, but it was also really, really flattering um, that people were excited to come out and meet us because this wasn't like this was a book that Ben and I wrote because we thought it would be cool and we were excited about, uh, this project. And then, um, all of a sudden it was something that we found out other people were excited about and wanted to learn more about. And I'm kind of an introvert. So it was kind of difficult for me to be like on for that whole week. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was really, I mean, I was, I was very flattered and excited and surprised and grateful for the people who were interested in it. That was really cool.
1: A way that you really do fit in with the Supergivers model is that, um, and tell me if I'm maybe overstretching here a little bit, but you, in your relative scene, you have come from being a, a person who's just sort of a high school runner, right? And very successful. Um, but you, in the last year or so, seem like you've taken an exponential leap into sort of minor celebrity status, or at least a lot more people know about you. Is that fair to say, at least in the running scene?
0: Yeah, certainly I would emphasize the minor part. Of course, of course. Yeah,
1: I know. I know. It's I'm not... <laughs> a
0: very situationally well-known. Yeah.
1: And I just yeah. want to say for listeners, just to add an element of, of um, disclosure, but also interest to this, you know, I recruited Scott as an assistant coach at the University of Portland. So I've known him since he was right before his senior year in high school. And yeah. so it's really neat to see the the arc of where you are now. And I'm sure people listening, you know, are striving to create something really powerful in the world. And I'm just wondering what it's been like for you, especially in the weeks since Boston, to receive the attention you've received and, and the interest um, about your world and your life. What is that like?
0: You know, it's, for me, it hasn't really been all that different because one thing I, I felt like we were I was doing really well before Boston and even before New York is not paying attention to, or caring so much about how like the outside world perceived what I was doing. I, um, it's a little bit harder to explain, I guess, in terms of running, but like, I never, um, thought about other people when I was trying, when I was like training and in this whole process for the last three and a half years as a professional. And I mean, in terms of our relationship uh it's been about 10 years and i would say for the majority of that i haven't worried about how what i've been doing is perceived on the outside because uh i mean that started because at the university of portland as you know um it's not a school that has this like long history of being really well covered or being particularly prestigious or thought about in terms of in terms of the col- the media following college athletics uh and so at that point i kind of realized like The only way that I'm going to get accomplish my goals is to focus on creating the best product that I can create, and everything else is just kind of noise. So I would say that attitude kind of took in or kind of set in um, my fifth year, my senior, my last year in 2014. So it's been about five years where I've really sort of focused on just doing the very best that I can do and creating the best product that I can create. And now I kind of feel like I have, I just have faith that it will, that the end results will work. Um, it'll be fine. Uh, as long as I do the best thing, the best that I can do, I have to be at peace with whatever the results are, because that, that's what I had. That's what I can do.
1: Yeah, and I'm even thinking of people who are, maybe their pursuit isn't a discipline like running, but they're trying to build a business or an NPO or a social impact project mm-hmm. and does it change you at all now to have um to be a little bit more visible? Or um, do you do you imagine your approach like with the trials coming up, you know, w- will that impact you now or or will you will it fuel you in a way or will it be a, a challenge, do you imagine?
0: Man, I hope I hope it doesn't change me in any way. Um <laughs> yeah, I hope it I certainly hope it doesn't. Um I think like I'm lucky in the sense that I'm I'm not like so well known that I, um, not so well known that my life changes drastically, but I do have a lot more opportunities and um, options opening up, you know, up to me, uh, particularly in the realm of like my financial opportunities are a lot more broad now. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, for a lot of reasons, I'm not going to run a, a marathon in the fall of 2019 here, but if I chose to, I could ask for a lot of money for, um, one of these races to come do it. And, uh, I decided not to, because that's, that wasn't part of the plan. That's not part of the process. That's not going to contribute to being the best or creating the best product long-term being the best runner that I can be over the course of the next year or the next two years. It would just kind of be forcing it. And, um, I made a very, conscious decision to, uh, to not chase a big check, even though I had the opportunity to. Um, so I guess that's a way of saying like, I'm doing everything I can to not let this change me.
1: Right. And I can imagine in your position that there's a seductiveness to that opportunity. So how, what does it take for you to stay connected with your values in this way, to stay on track with the bigger plan?
0: Yeah, I mean um I have people around me who I really trust and who I really feel comfortable uh I really feel comfortable with. So, the first person I talked about the fall plan with was my coach and co-author Ben Rosario and I know that Ben just wants the best for me and we were kind of on the same page with what we wanted to do and uh the next person I talked to was uh my agent and um, it's not, it wasn't like super easy for me to call him and be like, look, Josh, like, um, I know that you're going to get 15% of whatever you're able to negotiate me, but I'm not going to do that this year. Cause I mean, he's got a family too, and he's a businessman as well, but I feel comfortable telling, like, I understand that he works for me and I know that I have a good enough relationship with him where if I call him and be like, look, I know that it would be better for you to do this where i get a big appearance fee at somewhere like new york or chicago um i know it's going to be better for me long term if i don't do that and i i understand if you got to do your job and um negotiate with these people and just see what the offer is out there but i don't need to know about that because i've kind of made my decision and no i don't want to be tempted by a number and uh he respected the fact that it's ultimately my career and I am allowed to advocate for myself and make these decisions. And, um, yeah, so I I kind of just made up my mind as to what I wanted after talking with people who I trust and then figured out a way to stick to that plan and not give myself opportunities to deviate it for deviate from that plan for like short term
1: benefit. I really admire that. And I'm sure a lot of people do not because money is evil. Um, but because you stuck to your value system and to your bigger vision when there was a temptation to, you know, maybe take a little bit of a side path. Mm -hmm. And I think that translates for a lot of people in their lives where they have maybe not as clear a vision as you've created. I think that's one of the lessons you're here to kind of be an example of, but um, like we're always, we always have these opportunities to get pulled off our path and sometimes they're really appealing Like I'm sure that money would be great and it would be great to have your agent excited and sure it would help your, your group. We all know that, you know, the distance running is, is doing as well as as it ever has in certain ways, but it's not like the NBA. (laughs) No, by no means, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So you, it sounds like what you did primarily is really rely on the relationships uh, you had created and that, that implies that you created those relationships really intentionally or otherwise, you just kind of lucked out with great people,
0: kind of both. I guess, like mm-hmm. I did I was fortunate to come into contact with both ben and and Josh, um, who are both good people, and they're selfless and they care about me and as well as all the other athletes that they work with and represent. Um, so that was very fortunate that I was able to come into contact with them very early in my career. Um, I mean, right off the bat, um, I haven't ever had, had a different coach or a different agent. So that was very, very nice. But also, I also feel like I have been very diligent and very, um, those are both relationships that I've put a lot of work into um, and I've uh, gotten very close with Ben and we've developed a very good professional working relationship as well as we have a good relationship outside of running and i think one those things have kind of complemented each other like as we've gotten better friends our coach athlete relationship has gotten better and it's the same with josh like as i've been more open and more honest and more uh i mean we already sort of talked about this but more i guess vulnerable and let him know kind of what my like vision long-term is even if those big long big goals are hard to say early in the process uh he has sort of seen that and responded to that and it i think it helped that we were all sort of it feels like we're all sort of on the same in the same boat we're all sort of on the same train you know mm. and um and the train is is pointed way down the tracks so the track is long term um as opposed to kind of like i guess the other analogy to give do like another transportation analogy would it doesn't feel like we're in an uber ride where we're Mm -hmm. just getting from one place to the other Mm -hmm. it feels like we're on a long-term journey together Mm -hmm. and that's sort of made these like shorter term decisions easier
1: yeah you really you really bought the car together
0: yeah Mm -hmm.
1: well this is really sweet for me because probably about almost 10 years ago i probably asked you a very similar question um and it's going to be interesting to hear the, the answer and how it Shows up today in two thousand nineteen, and I'm wondering, in the vast landscape of humanity and where we are in the world, and where you are in your life, what is the rich meaning of running today for you?
0: Man, I you probably did ask me that, and I'm sure it's changed quite a bit. Um,
1: I think you wanted to win state the last time. Yeah,
0: yeah. (laughs) Uh, I guess running has kind of been a metaphor for and a vehicle for. Self improvement at this point, and I guess that's sort of what the journey looks right, like right now. It's certainly, absolutely, I mean, without a doubt, less extrinsically focused. Um, I kind of believe that the extrinsic stuff will come as long as I focus on the intrinsic um, motivations for running and the motivations for kind of living a pretty disciplined life. Um, and just focusing on trying to be the best version of myself and try to keep pushing what that best version of myself looks like. Um, and it's also something that, I mean, running I know is very meditative for a lot of people. And I don't necessarily know if it's, uh, if I would consider it like a form of meditation, but it's certainly like the best part of my day. And it's certainly like my hobby and I'm very, very lucky to be in a position where I get paid for my hobby. And so I think leaning into the fact that this is just something that I really love to do. And it's something that, um, something that allows me to try to get the very most out of myself and keep improving is sort of where running is in my life at this point.
1: It's nice to hear you say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. And I know to get to where you are and to be doing it on the level that you're on, you have to get past the ego attachment and the external reward. You know, that stuff's in there and it's in the mix of course. Right. But it, it can't be too dominant. It can't be leading the way all the time or else it's just unsustainable. Right.
0: Yeah. And I think, um, that really came into focus for me about two, two years ago. Um, at this race, the Houston half marathon. And I mean, I was in really, really incredible shape going into this race. And I really felt like I could do something really impressive. I thought I could break maybe 61 minutes in the half marathon, which, um, that probably doesn't mean a lot to many people, but only like six or seven Americans have ever done that. So I felt like I was in a place where I could do something really special. And, uh, when we got to the race, I mean, the morning of the race was just, it just wasn't good weather. It wasn't It just wasn't good conditions and I was so focused on, so focused on this, like I have to run this pace and I have to finish in this time and, um, that when it, I got out there and when it just wasn't going to happen, the conditions weren't right. And it was clear that there was no way I could sort of bring myself back under that pace. I just kind of like threw myself a little pity party and I didn't have any fun and it wasn't like, I wasn't trying that hard. And for like half a mile, I was just like, this is stupid. Why am I like? Why am I even running this race? I should just drop out. Like I should just stop. And kind of after that, I was like, man, like I just got away from. It was very clear to me that I'd gotten away from the reason why I had been running. I missed an opportunity to do the very best that I could do, even when the extrinsic factors weren't there anymore. And uh, so after that, I kind of made it a point to. Um, to focus on really evaluating whether or not I had done the best I could do. And then if I answer those questions, like, well, I trained as hard as I could and then I made all the right decisions in the race. And, um, I don't really think I could have run harder. Whatever those results were, whether that was 50th place or third place or first place, I have, you have to be okay with those results. You have to be at peace with that. Um, and sometimes you're just not, as good as you thought you were. And that's maybe a tough pill to swallow, but, um, it's a good feeling to have knowing that, um, you did the very best you could do.
1: So what did it take from you to go from that, that really pity party mindset to bouncing back and being on the path that you're clearly on now?
0: Yeah. So like two weeks later, um, I was at the U S cross country championships and, Uh, bend oregon and it was again like really really bad conditions it was really snowy and muddy and the course was slower but that didn't really matter there wasn't like a time goal or anything it was just kind of an opportunity to go and race as hard as you could and i was running a really good race through about 8k of the 10k race and uh as we're coming into the last two kilometers i like slipped down this really muddy hill and i got up and i i kind of like I pressed really, really hard to get back up to the leaders and, um, give myself a chance to finish high because the, at the U S cross country champs, the top six people get to go to the world championships, which was a team that I really wanted to make. And so there was like six of or seven of us or something coming into the last loop when I fell the first time. And I pushed really hard to try to get back up to that group. And then I'd pushed so hard that I kind of just fried myself and I fell again. Um, with about a, one kilometer to go and uh I got back up again and I got past, and I had fallen back into eighth but I just buckled down and I absolutely ripped the last K and not in terms of like pace but in terms of like like I took myself so deep into the hurt locker mm-hmm. even though I knew that I wasn't going to catch anyone ahead of me and I knew that nobody behind me was going to catch up and I knew that I wasn't going to finish high enough to necessarily make the team and um I just ran as hard as I possibly could, and it hurt so like Im- incredibly badly. Uh, and after that race, like I had, at that point, I felt like I, I had failed. I had missed my goal of being making the world cross country championships. But I was so proud of the fact that I ran as hard as I possibly could and just done as as the best that I could do in that moment. And that feeling of like complete satisfaction was so much more powerful to me than the feeling of complete like failure in not reaching those extrinsic goals. And I think I've done I've tried to cultivate that feeling I got when I was satisfied, but not necessarily as high on the standings as I wanted to be um, for the last, you know, a little over two years.
1: It almost sounds like a pure experience of freedom.
0: Yeah, I would say that, certainly. It's a uh, like autonomy i guess is what i think it is like when you're not bogged down by storylines and you can just kind of do your thing as well as you can do it yeah i feel very autonomous when i'm in that space
1: so when there was this is a really awesome kind of metaphor for folks too whether you're a runner or not when you'd perceived and accurately so right that you'd lost the opportunity for the outcome the external goal you were then free to engage in the in the deepest and most satisfying form of the experience.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: And it sounds like those two events were really transformative pieces that have helped you now say, okay, how do I integrate that? How do I have, how do I do this activity through the deepest satisfaction and have the outcome as a byproduct?
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I guess I don't think of, the outcome and the process necessarily being like linked like the process is the process and the outcome is because the process is very in your control um and the outcome is very out of your control so i i guess i see the outcome being almost like an accident of creating whatever you whatever you're able to create you know like yeah, I don't necessarily know that I I see it as like a byproduct, but almost like a well, maybe a byproduct's the right word. I just don't feel like that they are one hundred percent connected. Like the bridge goes across from process right. to outcome. Like they have the to process be it, correlative
1: or something, right?
0: Yeah, like the process is one thing, and then the outcome is is sort of a different thing. I like if that, that makes sense.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, it it allows even more autonomy, right? You mm-hmm. get to be autonomous from any sort of limitation that the outcome could create.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like, I guess the way I would describe it is kind of like, um, like Moby Dick, for example, uh, was not well received or it didn't do well at all commercially when it first came out, but that didn't change the fact that it was a really, really high quality work of, um, of writing. It was still, it still had a lot of integrity and it was the, it was a really good piece of literature, but that wasn't necessarily recognized immediately, but that didn't change how good it was. It's always been great. It just took other people a long time to realize it. You know what I mean?
1: So for people who are, maybe they're saying like, yeah, cool, I can get behind the process. That's a big, you know, buzzword in entrepreneurial circles and sports circles there is there is an attachment to outcome of some kind at some level so yeah. how how do you how do you create a relationship with those things that, that's optimal
0: i think you have to fail a bunch of times or maybe not fail like monumentally fail but you have to things have to go badly and then you have to realize that well it went b- badly because of things that i maybe necessar- couldn't necessarily control because lo- that happens a lot, you know. Um, yeah, it happens a lot that I think things go poorly and they're, they're not necessarily in your control and doesn't mean you couldn't have changed things in the process to make things go better. But if you have a vision for how you want your um, endeavor to be, I think you should double down on the the vision and then have faith that the process will take care of, or the outcome will take care of itself as opposed to, things go really poorly and then you change your change the, the way you're doing things in order to kind of try to game the system. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like, um, you shouldn't be changing yourself to figure out how to, you shouldn't be changing the way you do things necessarily to improve the way things end up. You should be always trying to create the very best product that you can and then have have faith that either the outcome will work out or if it doesn't work out you can have um you can be proud of what you accomplished even if it doesn't work out
1: yeah i like to think of the outcome as a really great reflective mirror for for where my attachments really are Mm -hmm. when i get through something and then i can really decide oh that's that is what I'm attached to, or that's, that is what really matters to me. And it sounds like in, in the USA cross race, you've got an incredible affirmation of like, yes, I am most nourished by the satisfaction of exploring my limits. And yeah. And like, that was the liberating moment where you realized, holy cow, like I can do my best independent of external environment. And one of the things that I really appreciated, I think the day before Boston, you tweeted out really encouraging tweet to all the runners. Like, I think it was like, no matter what the circumstances are, it it will be perfect. Right. And you're speaking to mindset, whether it's rainy, it's perfect. If it's hot, Mm -hmm. it's perfect. If It's humid. And of course, Boston can be extreme versions of all of those. Was was that what you, you were getting at really like trying to affirm and, and encourage mindset?
0: Yeah, I think the mindset and also, I guess, gratitude, mm. um, because I, I I ended that uh, tweet by saying, like, like, we get to run the Boston Marathon and that it really is a get to, you know, it's mm. not a have to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so no matter what the things you can't control are, whether that's weather or I mean, I guess in that case, the case of that tweet, it was weather. Uh, No matter what the weather is, it doesn't change the fact that you get to. You have an opportunity in front of you. And that's something to appreciate no matter how miserable or beautiful or whatever the weather is. It just gets to be perfect. It can just be fun and it can be great no matter what else is going on.
1: For people who aren't as familiar, maybe they're looking you up right now as they're listening, you ran 209 and some change, which is one of the where do you rank in u.s history now like ninth or something 11th 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 fastest 11th fastest in u.s history so you've got the external there you were seventh overall right
0: yeah that's correct
1: so i want to know in the context of everything we're saying what was the most satisfying aspect of boston for you
0: the most satisfying aspect was i guess the fact that i you know i'd said all these things about like i don't care who i'm racing and like, even right now, we've, we're talking about how ideally, if you're running a race, you should feel like real autonomous and you should really, um, and not just running a race, but if you're doing something, you should, in its best form, you feel kind of free and um, independent of these other things. And I think I did that. I, I cultivated that better than I have in any other race or performance or anything in Boston. And what I mean by that is like, one of the things that makes Boston challenging is tactically there are, are a lot of difficult decisions you have to make if you're going to try to run with the front pack, and we felt like I was fit enough to do that. But since the the class of athlete is so high, there's a lot of like surging and slowing down and surging and slowing down, and it's it's easy to kind of get sucked along into another, other people's race plan. And that's not what I did. I was able to step away from that, and when other people were surging, and I knew that that wasn't necessarily something I could do right now or should do right, right now. I was able to step back and be like and slip all the way back to 20th. And at one point, I was almost 20 seconds behind the leaders. Um, but I was able to kind of stay calm, remain in, in myself, do what I knew I had to be doing. Um, and eventually I caught up and I actually took the lead quite a few times and and pushed in some of the most difficult sections of the race and late in the race too. I was I led over heartbreak hill which is 21 miles into the race and right before I went back to the front. I was sitting kind of in the back of only there were only eight guys there and the Boston Marathon gives out your bib number based on your personal best time. And uh I was number 28 <laughs> out of 29 men in the elite field. So, I had the second slowest PR in the whole field. <laughs> And I'm sitting in the back at like almost 21 miles and I'm seeing like two and six and eight and 10, like guys who have run literally six to eight minutes faster than me over a marathon. And I w we were together with five miles to go and not to get too like bogged down in the details, but generally when you're in a position like that, tactically, it's not a great move to lead. Cause it takes more energy and you can, you kind of give them a free ride, other people in the group, a free ride, as opposed to, uh, as opposed to sitting back and conserving energy. But even as I looked at those bib numbers that were the, who, of the guys who had run minutes faster than me, I really felt like the best thing for me and the way I was going to s- feel the most satisfied was to go back to the front and run, just run the same basically time trial the last five miles, um, which tactically isn't necessarily a great move, but it was going to be the way that I was going to feel the most, the most, um, fulfilled. And that's kind of scary to go in front of people who have run so much faster than you and still put the pressure on them and try to break them. And tactically it didn't work, but I got dropped very, very quickly after going back to the front for that last time at 21 to 22 miles. And I mean, I wasn't going to stay with those guys anyways, but they dropped me and they they were ripping down the road. But I was able to stay in my gear and um, take you know I took my shot and took chances and um, pushed that line of how how fast I thought I could go. And uh, you know, I mean, I finished seventh place at the Boston Marathon. I was only about a minute behind the leaders, the very very leaders of the race, and uh, I was it was as well as I could have run. I had some of my bet my fastest five Ks towards the end and, um, yeah, it was as well as I could have run on that day. And I was proud of that because I didn't let what other people had done. Other people dictate my behavior. I kind of did what I knew it felt like was best and knew was going to
1: work out well for me. I'm fired up hearing that because it's the, <laughs> it's the same thing as, as the bend race. Mm -hmm. In the the bend race, you were liberated because you couldn't reach your goal. And in the Boston Marathon, you were challenged. Like this was sort of the way of of testing you and saying, okay, are you really going to stay true to yourself? Because staying true to yourself right now means going to the lead, which doesn't make much tactical sense. But in this case, that deep level of integrity and satisfaction outweighs tactics for you.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And without getting too like niche running podcast,
1: that's, all podcasts, right.
0: that's, that's all right. correct.
1: Runners um, might be hearing it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't going to be able to stay with those guys anyways when they made their big move,
1: but not much to lose. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Not much. I didn't have anything to lose. And I went to the front with a purpose and I just, I really am proud of the fact that I did take a chance there. It would have been easy and I, nobody really would have blamed me for sitting in the back of that group and kind of just just waiting for the other shoe to drop. But I'm proud of the fact that I didn't do that and that I put myself in a position to do something special. And even if that didn't work out, I still, I still gave myself every opportunity, yeah. which is uh, I think better than had I just sort of sit back and maybe I would have run a little faster or something like that. But I wouldn't have given myself a shot to do something really big.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, you know where I stand on this and yeah, <laughs> we've, we've been through a lot of these, a lot of these battles and it, it makes me really proud to hear that when anybody really trusts themselves. And I think, you know, as athletes, I can imagine that what you're balancing at times is the, is the priority. Like you, sometimes there's competing priorities of tactic versus personal values or or however you want to phrase that right. Intrinsic drive. And I remember you remember watching one of our former mates, Woody Kincaid, run the Olympic trials last time mm-hmm. around at the 5K. And he he made a he, – he had a – in the first 15 seconds, he had put into a position of decision for tactics versus uh, personal satisfaction. I'm not sure how intentional his decision was. But he he went he went to the front and he went for it and he stayed true to himself. And maybe it wasn't the tactical – way right yeah um, but i think we like in in life and it, it's so much in business uh there are these competitions between people and people like change their marketing and they they change their branding and they like shy away from who they are because so and so's you know more successful and i need to measure up and that's that's like the the example i'm thinking of in my mind that hopefully you can inspire is to say they're really Ultimately there really is no competition if you're coming from this place.
0: Yeah, or the competition is, I guess, within yourself. Yeah. It's whether or not you're gonna you know, there's there's this line of this song that I, I really like and it goes, um, my daddy told me, I believe he told me true, that the right thing is always the hardest thing to do. Mm. And I think that applies a lot to sort of what we're talking about. Like it's almost always easier to conform to what like maybe the mainstream or is saying, or what somebody has already, who is already successful has done, but it's not necessarily the right. Yeah. It's not necessarily authentically you. Um, and I think like Woody's example that you just brought up is a good example of that because like, without a doubt, a hundred percent when he made that move to try to go off the front and sort of threw tactics out the window, like, that was dumb. That was objectively a dumb thing to do, but it was also unapologetically, completely authentically Woody. Yeah. And that's better than being like smart and sitting back and never taking a chance and never risking, um, something silly happening or looking funny, you know?
1: Well, it speaks, um, it speaks to what you mentioned earlier about quote unquote failure, because I wouldn't necessarily see that as a failure, but it's like, we put ourselves in vulnerable situations and we can learn. Then, if he spent his whole career really ambivalent about his priorities and he just kept repeating that, I would imagine he would have a really unsatisfying career in running. Ideally, you know, his example and your example in Houston is this isn't failure, this is part of our development, part of our learning, and, and it reveals a little bit more clarity about who we are and what we most care about. And yeah. hopefully you take a step forward and then the next time you have a little bit more clarity about priorities and that influences decision-making and so forth.
0: Yeah. I mean, maybe final isn't, or failure isn't like the right word. I mean, maybe it is because I guess that you just have to like, I don't really necessarily see failure as a bad thing. Right. Like it's just, it's a, it's inevitable it's if you're learning, trying yeah. stuff, Yeah. if you're, you're trying stuff and you're working on things and you're trying to push your own boundaries, it is inevitable that you will fail. And yeah. Um, but yeah, I agree. Like as long as it's in failure is incorporated into the growth process, that's great.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I think of it as like failure is a shorthand for unmet expectations. Sure. That sure can can be learning, learning from Mm -hmm. pain. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, All right. Well, at the risk of taking a leap, I just want you to take a stab because you're a conscious person and you have an awareness of the world and and the sports world as well. And um, appreciate you sharing personally about your relationship to running. And I'm curious to know your thoughts on why sports can matter right now and and what the meaning is behind what you're doing, what you hope people can, how you hope people can benefit. I think
0: sports have kind of been they get portrayed in this really sort of simplistic way but if you take a step back and sort of look at running as a form of self-expression or not just running but sports as a form of self-expression and as a vehicle for for people to be their most authentic selves i think it's easier to see why it why it matters um and that means stepping away from kind of the the Bleacher Report, the ESPN, the Sports Illustrated storylines of like stats and um, injuries and all that kind of stuff. And just, just look at it as people who are trying to be the most true versions of themselves. Then I think you can see that it, Then I, I think that gives it more meaning than the way it's often talked about.
1: I love that because we are a culture looking, looking desperately to embody more truer forms of of ourselves. So it's amazing Mm -hmm. to have modeling.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the very, some of the very, very best uh, examples of this are, I guess the people I see it the most clearly in are, are some of these gymnasts like um, Simone Biles, for example, and, Ali Raceman and uh that I'm blanking on her name, but that uh girl from UCLA, the woman from UCLA who crushed that beautiful tumbling routine. It's like I I really feel like when I see somebody absolutely nail or do look like they're having so much fun on one of those floor exercises, I really feel like we're getting a a picture of of these people living the best version of their lives, and I think that's super, super cool. Mm. Um And that can be seen in any sport, but I think that it's the most fun. Those are some examples that are the most fun. And I'm by no means like a gymnastics buff. I don't know what any of the moves are called, but when you see Simone Biles like do these crazy flips, and where she's just being so powerful, it's like, man, like that's really cool. And I can tell that she's the reality of what is happening is matching her vision of the best self of her best self. And I think that's super cool.
1: Mm. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you want to speak to?
0: I mean, I guess one thing that I haven't, we haven't talked about, but is something that I find very helpful for me is like mindfulness and being present in the moment. And, um, that was kind of touched on, but not necessarily so explicitly, but, um, maybe that's a time that's a conversation for a different time, but I'm a big believer in mindfulness and meditation practice and, um, being present.
1: That's great. I mean, I actually, that reminds me to ask you, if if you were to give some sort of encouragement to people listening who can relate to the struggle, whether it's through exercise or, or in other arenas of their life, they can relate to the struggle of questioning the why of their discipline and like, can I make it to the level that I want to? And how do I have my relationship with what I'm doing? What's one encouragement you would give them?
0: One encouragement, I guess I would say is like it's healthy to question what you're doing and question um, whether or not you can make it. like if your goals are high enough, there should be times when you are wondering whether or not those are realistic goals or whether you're going to fall flat. Um, so like to say that those questions are healthy, but in terms of like like really practical advice, I would say to take up a meditation practice is probably the single thing in my life that I would say has helped me to improve and to start working at a higher level. Um, And I think starting a meditation practice for the sake of starting a meditation practice will be the best is the best way to do it. Not setting, starting a meditation practice with the goal of improving at whatever your craft is like start a meditation so that you meditate and then you will improve as a almost as a, by accident as you start getting more mindful and making those connections and improving your emotional regulation and focus, and which are all sort of symptoms of people who meditate a lot.
1: Beautiful. Well, uh, where can people find your book? Uh,
0: the book is on insideamarathon.com. Um, and we are, uh, we're working right now to get an e-version and potentially like a different, um, print version that'll be out this summer. But right now you can get the book at inside And are
1: there ways that they can support your Flagstaff group if they'd like to, or USA distance running? I mean, educate us there.
0: Yeah. Uh, you can follow me, um, on Instagram or Twitter, follow our group on Instagram or Twitter, um, Hoka and AZ elite um, pretty easy to find. And, uh, um, if you're interested in following us distance running, uh, I think our group's obviously a great place to start. And I think just, you know, letting the algorithm to take, take you places from there and deciding what you (laughs) like and what you don't like is, is, uh, probably what I would say.
1: And on tap for you in this cycle would be Olympic trials. next. Yeah. The Olympic
0: trials are, yep. They're February 29th. So that's, 10 months away now and i'll have like a little season over the summer and fall that where i focus on some shorter stuff race a lot we kind of have to get those dialed in but um race as much as possible and just sort of figure out um just kind of do some training i haven't done for a while and then uh come like late october early november turn all of our attention towards the olympic trials
1: that's so exciting so if you're listening you can follow scott through his olympic bid um And you were fourth last time, if memory serves, in the 10,000. He was fourth in Eugene at the Olympic trials in his first attempt. That's correct, right? right. And um, he'll be going for his first Olympic qualifying bid in the marathon in February. So keep an eye on him and give him lots of encouragement.
0: One thing that I wanted to ask you um, was what do you think when – if, you, if I asked you or if you were asked in 2010 when we first like officially met when I moved out to Portland, joined the UP team where you were assistant coaching, what would you have said the area in which I could grow a lot more would be? Where was my weakness in terms of not weakness, but maybe my deficit as like um, a growing adult? What would you have said there?
1: I would have said the ability to trust the long term process. I say that hesitantly because I know f- when I was 18, 19, it's really hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but to have an understanding of trust that, yeah, you'll get there. Because I remember that first year, you sort of overshot the intensity. Is that a fair way to say it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I fried myself pretty fried early. Fried yourself.
1: There you go. So I would, it seems like, you know, it's so, it's such a gift for me to hear where you've come to because you clearly are or living it and practicing it so fully now. And I'd love to, even some of the stuff you're saying, it's like, yeah, I've probably told you that like 50 times when you're at UP. Yeah. But <laughs> like it, it speaks to how, you know, we need to put people in the position to experience themselves rather than tell them what to do. That's what coaching is. It's not consulting. It's helping give people the opportunity to experience themselves. And so I kind of had a lot of trust that you would get there if you stuck with it. But I would say that freshman year, Scott, if you could just have confidence that, uh, you know, eventually it would happen if you trusted the process.
0: Does that seem fair? I think that's definitely fair. And that's a nice way that dovetail, dovetails nicely with what we talked about.
1: Yeah, well, I was thinking about it the whole time you're speaking. I'm like, man, you're, you've you just embodied everything that, you know, we hoped you'd get in your time at UP. And certainly you had a, a really successful career in a lot of ways. And I think you, you've you just continued to build on it in a way that I hope Young runners, if they're listening and young athletes, you know as a coach i've I've worked with it, but then I can't tell you how many former athletes I've heard, and even just listen to pro athletes, listen to n b a players in their press conference they're they're talking about trusting the process for a reason, and it's more much more than just a cliche in a popular semi popular book, and hopefully you're an example of that, like that people can really get that earlier and earlier, yeah. What would you What would you tell your eighteen year old self, knowing what you know? No, about? I. I think that's it. Like, <laughs> okay. You know, you, you don't know anything. Trust <laughs> the people around, around you.
0: Um, you know, buy into the process. Let the people you've, who know more than you, dispel wisdom. That kind of thing. Yeah. Cool. get out of your own way really. Yes, I
1: know and as I, I'm yeah. laughing because it's like, you know, that's what I would have wanted to tell myself too. And I'm not sure I would yeah. li- I'm not sure I would have listened. <laughs> I was thinking of this earlier when you were mentioning all that that there's some really important feedback for coaches of all types, not just athletic coaches, that if we find ourselves saying something that might be accurate and helpful continuously but it doesn't really have an impact, then the better question is how do we put somebody in position to learn this on their own? And I think what you've demonstrated today is the willingness to take that journey inside yourself over many years and many hardships uh, in running. Cause you, there was no other way you were going to get it. Right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think, um, I mean, you were always big on like natural consequences of things being the best teacher. I remember that. Hmm. Um, but, like, I think that could maybe be paired with like natural consequences plus introspection, yes, because if you don't if you don't have the second piece, you're just going to keep making the same mistakes. like, and I can use myself as a pretty good example of that,
1: yeah, no, I think you're right. and and that was a great point you make about the process of writing the book actually cemented a deeper level of introspection that helped you integrate the experience that much more,
0: yeah definitely.
1: And I really appreciate all that you brought today and shared. And I hope that your story can be really helpful for people listening. Thank you, Jesse. To check out Scott's book, Inside a Marathon, go to insideamarathon.com. My question for you is this, where in life is an over-attachment to outcome causing you unnecessary suffering? This has been the Super Givers Podcast, and I'm your host and producer, Jesse Johnson. You can help me out with one of three simple actions. You can write a five-star review on iTunes. You can tell a friend about the show, or you can listen to another episode on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. You can learn more about me and my equine-based leadership work at supergivers.com. Thanks for listening.